street epistemology is a wonderful approach that anyone can learn. Please follow me on Twitter at MagnaBosco or on Facebook and YouTube at MagnaBosco210. You can learn more about street epistemology at streetepistemology.com. The reason why we're here today, I want to get into for the viewers, is uh, at least from my perspective, you were you are a member of the, of a Reddit subgroup. I don't know if it's atheism or if it's atheism slash ex-Muslim, but um, you're you're on Reddit and you're familiar with street epistemology, and I think you started sharing examples of of videos of people using street epistemology with the group, and it sounded like there was some interest there, and then you asked the group and said, hey, uh, I'm willing to compile all your questions about street epistemology and we can do an AMA or even a blab on it. And uh, you received a lot of questions, I'd say half, you know, half a dozen, maybe six or between six and 10, I think, maybe questions. Um, and that's where we are today. Like I, the, the purpose of this blab is to, is to answer these questions that from folks that used to be Muslims, they're not. But just like a lot of the atheists that everyone here knows, they want to learn how to have effective conversations with, with their friends and family. And um, are you familiar with the slash Q function? If you type slash Q, Zach, you can actually um, put the question. It will actually show up on the oh, screen. Okay. You mean where it says uh, in the drop in any link here field? Mm -mm. No, where it says send a message, you can type slash Q and then do a summary of the question. And then uh, I can hit a button and put it on the screen. So okay, people so can, it'll be easier for people to follow along. Gotcha. Gotcha. So let me load the first one in there. And I will say, I mean, just because, listen, I, I mean, I, I can't really relate my own experience to that of, you know, ex-Muslims. I, I wasn't really, I, I didn't grow up in a, a, you know, a, you know, theocratic country. Uh, I mean, uh, and I, I really, I didn't have parents that truly, truly were just, drinking all in on the Kool-Aid <laughs> and a lot of these uh, Muslims, you know, what their experiences and, you know, what they went through, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of resentment and then that resentment, you know, it, it kind of fuels a lot of militant, like, I guess, wrath to really, really, let's, let's go talk these Muslims out of believing. And, you know, they, I feel like some of the methods, or at least some of what's been, uh, I mean, I guess their, their methods of really, uh, of, of, of approaching this issue, you know, it definitely, it needs some refinement. And okay. uh, let me, I'm going to give a little bit of a background of what street epistemology is for the people that are watching this that don't have a clue, have never heard of it before. And while you're preparing the first question, and yeah. I'm told that the slash Q function doesn't appear, it doesn't work the way that I, I guess it's been a while since I've been on Blab, but you used to be able to do that. But if they type, if you type slash Q, Zach, it will show up in the comments field. All right, one second um, here. This all started with a book by Peter Bogosian called A Manual for Creating Atheists. Can you guys see that there? Uh, it came out in 2013, I believe. And I read the book and I was immediately blown away with the potential of it because I was having conversations with my loved ones and friends, family, um, and they weren't going very well. I was, I was alienating them. I was being angry, getting angry. 
and uh, some people even stopped talking to me because of the approach that I was using. So um, this more effective, gentle style of street epistemology really appealed to me. Uh, and I started going out on the street and asking people just to chat for you know a short amount of time and I would record the conversations. I've been doing it for about three years and um, I feel like I've gotten a lot better at it and I've been sharing what's been working and what's not on my YouTube channel. So um, no, I, you really, very pleased I mean, with I don't how things are going. You, I don't want to say you got it down to a science, but I mean, just looking at your first video, or I think it's maybe one of your first videos where you're really just trying to, you know, I don't know, have a, engage in a shouting, you know, apologetics with the street mm -hmm. preacher. You know, I, you really, I'm really impressed, you know, with just how much your approach has, you know, you've kind of fine tuned it, you know, over, over the year. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, those old ones are pretty raw. Uh, my, my first you know, forays out into the wild are, are pretty bad. But You stay so calm and composed, and I feel like that, you know, that, that I feel like is, is, is half the game. You know, it's just me maintaining your calm and not coming across as, as threatening to, to somebody else. Because, listen, I mean, especially – when you have a lot of resentment and you, you have a lot of, you know, grievances, you know, with, uh, you know, I, I guess in this case, you know, other Muslims, there, there is that tendency to really, you know, I, I guess show that anger, you know, but it, that's really not productive, you know, in the end. And I think, you know, in some of your first videos, you, you, you show why, you know, that's yeah, it's, it becomes pretty evident that, that nobody's <laughs> learning anything from just yelling at each other. Yeah, and uh, yeah, street epistemology is is primarily about asking questions, listening, striving for understanding, and getting to the root of why the person holds the belief. How do they form it? How do they know that it's reliable? The method that they use. So, um, do you want to read the first question here? Or I, yeah, I, I copied and pasted it. I can read it. Alrighty, uh, I'm a bit unfamiliar with street epistemology, but is there a situation in which, when discussing with a Muslim, it would be better to just stop talking and walk away. For example, if they were to get emotional, speak of the devil. Could you describe the best way to go about challenging a Muslim's beliefs or at least how to get them to re-examine their beliefs more critically? Okay, right, so, so the, yeah, the first part of that has to do with recognizing when you're in a situation when it's probably best just to, to not even have the conversation. If, if tempers are flaring, if people are upset, if, if, if everyone's digging in to make their point, then I wouldn't, I, I would just end the talk. I would just, it would be better just to stop talking and walk away um, and, and, and revisit it. Just say, listen, it, it seems like we're both fighting here when I really want to understand what you believe. Uh, why don't we just take a break and pick this up in two weeks? So I, I would just put that on the back burner. Uh, the second part of this is, could you describe the best way to go about changing a Muslim's beliefs or at least getting them how to re-examine their beliefs more critically? Yeah, uh, that's what we're here to talk about. That's what street epistemology is. Uh, and I, I gave a little bit of an overview as far as what that is, but it's all about respect and being sincere to understand what the person believes. So... I wouldn't recommend trying to approach these conversations as uh, I'm here to completely show you the light. It's more about sh help me understand 
how you've arrived at your belief. And let me ask questions to see if you're so, if you can justify the certainty that you think that you have. So I would recommend just trying to approach it as a partnership. Try to reduce distractions too. I wouldn't do it, if you can, I would try to do it face-to-face, -face, like over Blab. Um, or, you know, if you are in person, that would be ideal. But over the telephone might be good or Skype. Uh, I wouldn't recommend doing it on a Facebook page where there are other people watching and can and could completely throw things off by by presenting facts. So um, we're talking about the way that I think is the best uh, to not only um, help people examine their beliefs more critically, but to plant seeds of doubt, which yeah. could in turn result in them actually abandoning their belief. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, you know, I noticed myself from, I guess, engaging in street epistemology with, you know, some Muslims, you know, not, you know, in person, you know, over text message or, you know, what have you, is that, you know, when the heat really turns up or, or the person really feels uncomfortable, you know, they just abruptly just disappear. And I won't hear from them mm. for like, you know, another week and a half. Whereas if you do it in person, you know, obviously... You know, first, it's a lot more personal, uh, you know, obviously, but it, it's also, I don't want to say they don't have that option to escape because obviously they do. You, you even you suggest timing it for, for five minutes, but uh, I really feel like in person, you really get to have a sense of their body language and use that as a cue of how, you know, you want to maybe readjust, you know, uh, in the process of, of, of talking to them, you know, adjust your pitch, take a, take a, you know, take a few moments of silence like you usually do. I mean, mm -hmm. that was, you know, uh, I think the first part of the question pertained to, you know, when someone gets too emotional. I mean, I think that's one of the things you, you really, you know, you really nail is those silences, you know, just allowing someone to collect themselves and allowing someone to really, really just, I mean, because people get flustered, and as soon as they get flustered, you know, they're, it's almost like they see that their self-image, you know, is on the line here. Like, I have to give a good, good response, you know, he's making me look stupid. That mm -hmm. th Those moments of silence are key for just allowing someone to calm their emotions and just really try to, you know, pick themselves up and, uh, you know. Yeah. I mean, silen silences are helpful, but even more broader, try to approach this as you have this belief and I want to really understand why you think it's true. Let's take the belief, throw it under a microscope and as a partnership, let's work together to, to understand why you believe it and why you think it's true. And what's the method? What are the methods that you use to arrive at the confidence that the belief is true? So that's, yeah, I would, I would try to frame it in that way. What's the second, what's the next question? Let's cruise through these. All right, one second here. Is your, uh, who's that person that's just uploading the questions? Should, should I still be? Yeah, just throw them in the, throw them in the chat. He'll put okay. them in the, uh, in the doc. Thank you, Christian, for doing that. Okay, I got it. Okay. All right. All right, so what small hints or questions could an ex-Muslim in the closet say to their Muslim friends to get them thinking while not arising suspicion? I completely understand that Muslims or ex-Muslims in particular have to be 
a little bit more cautious when walking having these types shells, of conversations. Yeah. yeah, walking on eggshells. They have to be more cautious for sure. Um, I would probably give the same advice that I would give somebody that would be asking, how do I have a conversation with my mom about Jesus when I know that she's going to get upset when I start asking questions? One thing, the, 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 the answer that I typically give here is you don't have to use street epistemology or these Socratic questions of discovery for sensitive topics. You can, you can talk about anything. So if somebody makes a claim in your family, if your mom makes a claim that, uh, the, the example that I give is she might say, um, I'm thinking about getting a car, but I'm not going to get one of those red ones because those get more speeding tickets. That is a safe topic where you can start asking Socratic questions and helping the person to start thinking in that manner. So you can be the person in your family that asks Socratic questions of street epistemology for everything else except the sensitive God talk. And what I'm hoping, what I suspect would happen is that the next time that that person makes a claim, what a wonderful day that Allah has given us. And if you're in the room, they might start to anticipate what you might ask because you've had all these previous other discussions about how do they know these things without even having to ask it. So that might at the very least get them thinking and it may even open the door. They might say, now this would be about the time where you would start asking me why I think this is the case, isn't it? And then you can just jokingly start into that conversation as well. So that's, that's my approach, uh, my suggestion on that. I mean, I think it's important to have these big talks, but I understand that there are sensitive topics that are off the table for a lot of people. So my approach would be, choose safer topics and be the person in your family that asks those types of questions. Sorry, my screen just froze here for a second. Yeah, I, I, I mean- uh, One other thing, we could cut out the middleman here, Zach, if you want to send the link to uh, I mean, we could just post the link to these questions and then Christian could just get them queued up if okay. you don't mind, do it. If you don't yeah, mind yeah, doing yeah. that, Christian. That way you can be more focused on the, yeah, on the yeah, discussion yeah. too rather yeah, than having sure. to worry about the... Thank you, Christian. You're awesome, man. Yeah, I, I mean, um, just to add to what you're saying, I mean, because, uh, uh, I mean, I'm no education uh, expert but i do read a lot of the uh you know educational psychology literature on critical thinking and uh obviously you know none of these classroom interventions you know directly focus on you know faith and, and kind of trying to deprogram you know the uh the you know the religiosity of uh of students but it's really just instilling these um good critical thinking, I guess, habits, you know, and, and kind of just instilling them as, as intuitions when, so that when someone approaches, I mean, maybe not necessarily faith, it could be, you know, uh, whether to pursue some alternative medical path or something, this, that intuition will be cued uh, and, uh, and they'll be able to have these skills in order to assess, you know, the validity you know mm -hmm. of uh, a given proposition and, and that's kind of how 
the educational literature goes about it. And you'll see that they've, they've done a bunch of studies showing that, you know, the people with analytical cognitive styles are, in terms of, you know, personal religiosity, usually correlates either with non-belief or more sophisticated uh, theologies, you know, such as deism or, you know, a Spinozan god or, or whatnot. So these rooting these habits, you know, early on and not even, I mean, if you're talking to your mom, you know, just make it, uh, I guess, make it a routine that when, you know, when you're engaging in conversation, you know, always just kind of slowly, you know, sidestep the faith and just kind of just plant these just modes of, of thinking, you mm -hmm. know. And, there was uh, another question. And there was another question I remember seeing about what's the best way to talk to kids. Yeah. Oh, do you not have the link? Oh, I did Christian, uh, his, his, did he upload the next question or he's, he needs the link to the page. Ah, okay. I got it. Um, there was a question here, here there about, uh, children. When is the most appropriate time to start teaching or do you ever use street epistemology with kids? Something along the lines. I think that would be a good question to throw up on the screen next if we could, because yeah, sure. what, what you're talking about, like this idea of teaching critical thinking. I'm of the position that you can't start doing it early enough. The, the sooner you can teach your kids to critically think and respectfully challenge what you are even telling them or that adults tell them, the better. Why wait until somebody's 50, 60 years old before you have to start getting them comfortable with the idea of introspection and asking these questions? This should be happening far, far earlier. And if anyone out there is listening that's interested in this, there's something called Camp Quest where you can send your kids away to camp for a week in, in many of the cities, in many of the states in the United States, where um, your kids can go away for, for a week and be exposed to critical thinking. So um, let me dovetail into this question here uh, if I ever use street epistemology with children. I, I guess in a way I do because um, I'll use it with my kids. They, they said one day that, they were certain that we needed to get another dog. They made a claim and I can just start asking questions. Why, why do you think that that's the case? What would change your mind? So um, it's never too early to, to start introducing your kids to critical thinking. And uh, I don't think there's, I don't think it's ever too early to start asking street epistemology based questions. Now, if my neighbor came over, my nine year old neighbor, who's, you know, she's, she's nine years old, little, and I think she's being raised to believe that Jesus exists. I'm not going to have a conversation with her, but my kids have been exposed to critical thinking and I'm sure invariably she'll make a claim. My kids will probably respectfully challenge it. And, and that's a great thing. So I, I wouldn't use it directly with kids like to plant seeds of doubt on beliefs that their parents are raising them with. I think that's somewhat off limits. But if, if they open the door, if they make some sort of claim, or if they, if they cross the line and say, um, you know, Mr. Magnabosco, your kids are going to go to hell if they don't believe in Jesus. Well, then I might be a little tempted to ask a question or leave a question with them um, because I think that may, they may have crossed the line. But their kids... And I think you could probably have a greater effect by having those types of conversations with their parents. How do I send Christian the link here? Every time I try to put it in the 
side uh, chat window, it kind of just shows up as a smiley face. Go ahead and message it to me. Okay. Uh, on on uh, Facebook. Okay, I got gotcha. you. And I'll, I'll copy it over to him. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, they say the same thing, uh, you know, about evolution. How it, it's possible to teach kids is as even as young as five years old. I mean, obviously, you have to do a, to adapt it, you know, so it could be intelligible to a five-year-old. But there, it really. Like you said, it's 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 never too. There is no age where it's like, okay, now you know I should start really, you know, bringing my kid to reality. You know, yeah. and, and, you know, and just. I, I've, of, even, I've, I've even had some fun with it, Zach. Like, I'll be driving down the road, and let's say I'm taking the kids to the pool or something, and I might make some. I might make some. I'll make some. Wild, I'll make some wild claim. I'm getting an echo. I'm getting an echo. I'm getting that too. Getting that too. Uh, did you accidentally open up a, yeah. Test, test, test. I really don't want to refresh my window. Zach, can you hear me? Zach, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you loud and clear. I can't hear you. Oh, you can't hear me. Oh, shoot. Um, sometimes, uh, you can hear Zach. Okay. Maybe it's me. Let me uh, drop uh, off and I'll come back on. Alrighty. Oh, before I do that, uh, you blab experts, is my dropping off going to end the blab? Hmm. That I, I do not have an answer for. <laughs> okay. That's right. Yeah, Zach is a host. Okay. I'll be right back. Oh, boy. I wasn't ready for this. <laughs> Test, test, test. Boy, I can't hear y'all. Test, test. You can hear me? Okay. Zach, can you say yep. something? Yep. Okay, good. Good. All right. We're awesome. Um, oh, I wanted to say, I'll create stories. I'll make up something like, did you know the other day that a UFO landed in that field over there? And that usually gets kids' attention. And then you can encourage them to ask you questions on how I could possibly know that that's the case. So you can make it a game too. I wanted to make sure that I covered that. that that's a fun way to, to start introducing your, your children and young kids to critical thinking. And I mean, one of the things that I was even surprised about myself just from you know, reading the developmental psychology literature is that, I mean, I mean, listen, like they're not scientists, obviously, but kids are, they do have a natural sense of skepticism. I mean, they're still trying to, I guess, piece together how the world works and that is something that defies their intuition or something that you say or something, another claim that somebody else says, you know, defies what they perceive as to be, you know, reality. They are naturally skeptical about that. It's not like they're just, you know, waiting for anybody to input whatever kind of, you know, cockamamie beliefs, uh, yeah. you know, and, and encourage, encourage your kids or reward them. When they ask you, why is that dad? Or I don't know if they, even that they say, I don't know, you should commend them for being honest and saying that they don't know, and then try to make it an adventure and say, okay, well, since we don't know this, let's go and figure it out. Like this happens almost always at our dinner table. I'm trying to think of an example where, we were wondering, I think it was about the EU, 
And yeah, somebody said that the value of the British uh, currency was dropping. And I thought that that was unusual because they were part of the European Union. So we were like, well, how is that the case? So we started researching it to figure it out. So it was cool. Yeah. So look, look for those. Don't shy away from investigating things with your kids and, and rewarding them when they ask questions and, and uh, say themselves that they don't know something. Yeah. I mean, you're, I mean, I'm not, yeah. you know, hopefully <laughs> I'm, I don't plan on being a dad anytime soon, but I mean, you have kids and there are, are they naturally curious, right? I mean, uh, I mean, when you're brought into the world, once you leave the womb, you know, you have a lot of questions. I mean, at least by a certain point in your development. Let's so, go with our next question here. Question four. All right. Okay, what are the best questions to ask that deal with addressing, addressing cognitive dissonance? We should probably define what that is first. Uh, and for instance, how can you get someone to think about their belief in Muhammad as the ideal human being while also knowing about this, his, this, his marriage to Aisha? So when you raise things to a believer that you're certain is going to cause cognitive dissonance, it, it's going to, like that's going to probably eat at them, but there's another effect that will happen. Uh, they will probably be less likely to want to talk with you about it. <laughs> and they're certainly going to be less open to considering that, that uh, they're mistaken on it. So I would avoid trying to get a person riled up or embarrassing them, or you're going to put them on the defensive. So, um, the, the nice thing about street epistemology is that it's a, it's a great way to bypass the defensive postures that believers will raise when you start asking the, those, those typical questions. So I wouldn't mention, I, that's such a go-to for atheists. Yeah. Don't, don't do that. That's, that's, that's only going to end up making the person defensive. I don't care about what they believe. When you're using street epistemology, you want to understand how they are so certain that what they believe is actually true. So you don't need to know it. You don't need to know anything about the doctrine. A Muslim that was raised Muslim that is now an atheist and doesn't know anything about Christianity can have a powerful, meaningful conversation with a Christian and not know anything about their doctrine. You don't need to know it. In fact, the more you know about the doctrine, the more tempting it's going to be to start getting into the weeds of that. And uh, that can end up being a liability for you. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't mention stuff like that. That's not going to be helpful when it comes to getting to why they think it's true. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, uh, I feel like, I mean, the whole- Somebody said that sounds really tough. It is tough. It is tough to avoid that arguing yeah because listen the whole marriage to asia i mean that's you know counter apologetics 101 you know for for muslim is to engage what i really think is these peripheral beliefs i mean if we i guess want to perceive someone's belief system as like a tree or i guess a web i mean these are really i mean i guess one psychologist called it the protective belt I mean, none of these beliefs, these beliefs are kind of at the margins, whereas the core, the actual epistemology, 
someone's, I guess, higher order assumptions of, well, the Quran is, you know, is, you know, the perfect word of the creator of the universe. That, that is something that we need to get to. We have to sidestep, you know, all of these, I guess, you know, apologetics that's really kind of don't really go anywhere. Because if you're going to tell me that, you know, Muhammad married Aisha, whatever, at, at nine years old, you know, that dissonance, I'll obviously, you know, if I don't have an answer immediately then, I, I mean, I'm, I'll go and I'll look up that answer and I'll look up not only one answer, but multiple answers. And then I'll walk away and I'll feel even more confident that mm. I'm yeah. right and, and you're wrong. That's exactly what you, if you don't know the answer to that, you'll get defensive and then you'll go out to sources more than likely that will provide you with defenses for it. You're, right. not, not at any point are you going to say to yourself, is this really a belief that's worth holding? And that's the nice thing about the street epistemology approach is that it's not going to send somebody on a mission to find excuses to keep holding on to the belief and defending these, these other ideas. Um, yeah. Right. And I, the approach has to be about the broader assumptions, like the broader like epistemological assumptions, you know, of, of why, I mean, because obviously one can't make the, all these other, I guess, lower order claims without the validating context of, well, this is the work of the creator of the universe and everything that is, you know, mentioned therein is, you know, is, is true. So we have to sidestep, I guess, all these, I guess, you know, lower tier apologetics mm -hmm. and, and get to really the core, uh, which is, you know, how someone's reasoning allows them to get to the, you know, those lower order beliefs. And let, me be, let me be really clear here too. Like if, if you Zach were the person that held the belief and I were to come at you with some facts that, you know, how can he pass, how can Muhammad possibly be ideal if he was, if he married a nine year old girl? Well, your defenses are going to go up, but there are, depending on the venue that we're in, if we're on a blab, there might be three people that are observing that, that have the same belief as you. And because they're observing the discussion, they might give it a little bit more thought than you would. So counter apologetics can be effective, Yes, but not in a one-on-one -on -one situation typically. Typically your defenses would go up, but there are observers that would be more willing to objectively think about it. Yeah, I mean, listen. They're not in the hot seat, you know? It definitely has its place. I mean, my survey data bears that out. I mean, I, I think uh, roughly, I mean, between in-person debates, online debates, and new atheist literature, I think some, you know, uh, I think even maybe a majority or, I mean, a, a plurality of people say that that's really what, what's the difference maker for them, you know, in getting them to question. So it does have its place. It's just if you really, really want to connect with somebody and really, really, uh, I don't want to say make it easier for them because it, listen, cognitive dissonance, it could be very stressful. It could be, you know, it, cause you're like, you're, your, your personal esteem here, you know, is, is being called into question, yeah. you know, and uh, it's, it's very important to, I, I guess, try to, go into it without assuming anything, just ask questions. And I think what you, you do a great job in showing that, listen, you know what, I could be wrong. And if I'm wrong, I want you to get me on the right path here. 
So by me asking questions, I may be able to correct my own, you know, misconceptions. And uh, I think that's very, uh, it's an important tool. Yeah, well said. All right. Do you want to read the next question? Sure. The app, when will we finally be able to use it? This was planned to be ready at the end of the last year. I have still not seen it. I can't wait. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, don't think we're I share his enthusiasm. I, I think it was released in Australia, was it? It's available in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, this is an app for anyone that doesn't know. Peter Bogosian has been working on an app called Atheos. A-T-H-E-O-S. Atheos-app.com if somebody wants to drop the link in, in there. It's going to be available on Android and Apple devices. Uh, I don't know when it will be available worldwide. I do know that the team is doing a soft release in those two countries. Why just, in Australia? Just, I mean. I'm not sure why. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure how they settled on those two. Maybe okay. somebody on the team knew people there, or I know Bogosian was there six right. months ago. Yeah, and, yeah. And maybe, yeah. And maybe he's made some contacts for people to promote it. I'm not exactly sure what the, the reasoning there was. But um, from what I've seen, the app has been extremely stable. It's been, we've been getting a lot of favorable responses. I don't see any reason why it's not being rolled out worldwide yet, but the team might know something that I'm not aware of. So it should be soon. And just what, what does the app do? Uh, it will put you into scenarios where you're talking with believers. The believer will make some sort of claim or statement, and then you'll be presented with four up to four multiple choice questions. You can, I think you can tweak the difficulty and change it from two to four, uh, between two and four. And uh, there are two ideal responses and two poor responses. And the objective there is to help you get comfortable selecting what response would be most indicative of using street epistemology. So it's a great way of learning how to use street epistemology without having to go on the street and, and start conversations with people. That's oh, really cool. Yeah, it's kind of like a simulation, I guess. Uh, I mean, I yeah, don't know. And, and a lot of people have, a lot of atheists uh, have submitted essays, dialogue trees. There are things in there from, um, I mean, David Smalley has written an essay, David Silverman. Uh, there are dialogue trees from, uh, who wrote uh, Nailed? Was that David Fitzgerald wrote some uh, dialogue there about somebody? We we have things about you're having a conversation with a Mormon, a Scientologist, someone that is a proponent of Falun Dafa, and uh, it's really cool. I think I think it'll be a big hit. I'm down. <laughs> okay, next cue, please. Have you found, oh, this is actually one that I, you know, I was initially stumped on myself, but I'll, I'll read mm. it first. Uh, how have you found, uh, how have you found is the best way to address someone's beliefs that can be described as pantheistic? The person in question, I've been thinking of trying the SE approach, identifies as Muslim, but seems to believe that all religions are some version of the same thing. We, I, I hear that refrain a lot. Uh, I noticed that you don't really go into apologetics, counter-apologetics for whichever God belief is in question for the person you're interviewing, and that's something I'd like to avoid here as well. 
The reason I'm having trouble with this is because I think a very powerful question you use is, how would you tell the if your uh, how would you tell the if your belief is more correct than someone else's? This doesn't seem to apply with this person because their belief essentially is that all religions have a universal truth. You know, we're all worshiping the same God. You know, it's just you know different variations of the same theme, I guess. Also, a large part of his beliefs are centered around his personal experience with what he claims is God working in his life. I found a lot of interviews with people holding the same reason for their beliefs, but I feel the pantheistic nature of this guy's position is holding me back from addressing it the way you did it in your interviews, which was to ask them why their version of the truth was more true for the most part. Okay. So, so at the heart of this question, this, 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 person, this is a very good question. And I think in a nutshell, what they're, what they're noticing, are you guys getting an echo? I don't hear anything. Test, test. Okay, we're good. I think we're good. Yeah. What the hell? I wonder if it has to do with CJ's antics. <laughs> CJ, knock it off. Okay. Um, in a nutshell, this question is noticing that a lot of the times when you watch a video that I've uploaded, that I upload or have an interview that I have, I very often go to one of the tools that are that's in our arsenal and that's the outsider test for faith so if i'm talking with a muslim who is absolutely sure that the quran is the one true book a great question would be something like well i've, I've talked with um, i've talked with hindus that are absolutely sure that their holy book is correct how, how could we possibly know which one is more true than the other and there is this relativistic philosophy yeah. <laughs> that I'm seeing a lot of, and it's disturbing. And I, I, my hypothesis was that there are more young people that are doing it than old people, but I, I don't think that that's the case, actually. I think there are a lot of people, regardless of your age, regardless of your demographic, and it sounds like even Muslims are willing to do this, where they'll say, well, that Hindu is just as right. They're just as true in their belief as I am with mine. And they have a right to believe in it. They're, that's, that's their truth. They're just as true. It's okay to, for them to have them tru their truth. Who am I to tell them that their truth isn't right? And um, it's an alarming thing that I'm noticing. So this whole pantheistic thing, like at, 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 in a nutshell, this whole question here, is about how do you counter relativism? How do you counter subjective subjectivism or subjective truths? And I'm still working on it. There are a lot of people that are having discussions on how we can break through of that. Uh, and I've, um, I've actually started throwing interviews where this comes up in a playlist called, what did I call it? I think I call it relativism. So if you go to my YouTube channel, Magnabosco210, and look for a playlist called Relativism, all the discussions where this comes up are in there. And if you start at the oldest video and work your way up to the current one, I think you'll see some progress. I think I'm finding a way to break through of that. Ultimately, what I think it's coming down to is how they're defining truth, how they value truth, 
how important it is to them to believe true things. And uh, do they really live by that? Do you really think that a truth could be true right now? You could hop on an airplane and fly to India and your truth would actually differ. Do you really think that? I, I think people are well-intentioned and they don't want to offend people. Right. And that's completely overshadowing logic. And it's a real problem. So I think you're going to start noticing the videos that I upload are going to be honing in on this more earlier on in the talks. Um, there was a video that I just uploaded yesterday where the whole talk was about truth. We didn't even get into her belief. It was all about how she defined it. So um, we're working on it, but it is an issue. And I'm certain that there is a solution out there. I also feel like in a way, pantheism is something, you know, maybe a believer previously at, at a previous stage in his theology, you know, was a, an exclusivist, meaning being my truth is right and, you know, everybody else is wrong. And then slowly they realize all these contradictions and this is a way to bridge them all. So it's saying, you know what? Nobody's wrong and we're all right. Yeah. The good news about this is that people that say everyone has their own truth, as frustrating as that is for people that are very logically based and, and um, you know, use critical thinking and all that stuff. The good news is that they're not rigid fundamentalists who are absolutely certain that right. they have the truth and they figured it out and everyone else is wrong and you need to follow my way or else. Hashtag progress. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's a step back before we take three steps forward. So uh, yeah, I, I think as frustrating as it is, it may not be the worst thing in the world, I, but it sure as hell is frustrating when you encounter it. One of the things I guess, I mean, I think maybe you've towed such a line in one of your interviews. Uh, I also, I think I broached it with you as well, is when somebody says, well, you know, everybody has their own truth and, you know, it's true to them. You know, I think a good way to respond to that is, you know, do you want to live in a world where everybody just has their, and, and acts and, and, and follows through on what they believe to be the truth? Because if we're going to accept such a world, then we have to accept the possibility that someone who's going and joining ISIS, you know, that, that's true to him. You know, mm -hmm. those beliefs that he is actually fighting to expand and spread God's dominion around, you know, the earth, that, that is true. And what, if you're going to say, well, you know what, everybody's truth is equally valid, then you can't possibly tell him that what he's doing is, you know, is just wrongheaded. Yeah, and you don't even have to use an extreme example. When I first started encountering it, I would go to the extreme. Well, there's a guy sitting in a cave who's a member of ISIS that is willing to detonate himself and take out a whole bunch of rivals. Is his truth just as true as yours? But um, that, that can be somewhat shocking. You can see like, whoa. And um, sometimes you get some interesting responses to that. Uh, three weeks ago, I encountered a woman on the trail who was going up down this relativism. It's true for me and everyone can have their own truth. And I reached out and I grabbed her water bottle from her. And I said, uh, that's actually my water bottle. It's true for me that that's mine. And you can see she just started smiling and I think she got the point. I don't think people 
I don't believe people think about it. They don't think it all the way through. And I don't think that they live by it. If people lived by it, they wouldn't right. mind if they went out to the parking lot and their car was stolen because, well, maybe it was true for the person that took it that it was their car. So yeah, people, I don't think people perseverate on this stuff as much as we do and think about it, um, which is the beauty of asking these types of questions because I think it is valuable for people to think about it and give a little bit of thought as to, can I really hold a truth that is different for somebody else? Right. I, I also feel like those, you know, pantheists, they're more spiritual than anything. And I feel like they could kind of be blindsided from the fact that, well, this may be more spiritual for you, for other believers, for other, you know, adherents to truths, you know, this is their really, this is their fiber, you know, of, of their existence. And this is how they live their life. I mean, mm -hmm. you being the pantheist, you go and, you know, go to your Buddhist retreats on the weekend or, you know, whatever, however you practice your spirituality. But for some of these people, you know, th this, I mean, what the holy book says that this is true. <laughs> I mean, uh, so I, I do feel like the pantheists tend to be more liberal, whether that's a sign of progress or whether that's a stop along the way towards, you know, even more doubt, you know, is debatable. Yeah. But uh, I do think that these people do need to be engaged because even a claim, universalist claim, you know, like you, we often encounter with these people is it's important to get them to reflect on it and what the ends entail. Yeah, I, I think uh, you move from fundamentalism down to thinking you become a little bit more liberal in your beliefs and then you become spiritual. Well, there must yeah. be something out there or you become a deist and then maybe you become spiritual and you're a little bit wishy-washy on definitions. And then maybe you go to, well, it's true for me. And then like, maybe we shouldn't be so discouraged when we encounter it because just around the corner is probably non-belief. Right. So it's just a matter of defining those terms, getting them to buy into definitions, getting a clear understanding of between the differences of what does true mean what is a fact? What is a belief? What is knowing something? Um, what is, it, what is an opinion? Right. Are you talking about an opinion or are you talking about a truth? Uh, the, the woman that I talked to yesterday, you should watch it. Her name's Carol. She talks about there are factual truths and then there are inner truths. Right. <laughs> I thought it was a great way of, of breaking that down. And she came up with that on her own just from asking Socratic questions. Okay, let's move on. Oh, I didn't Is notice. It, okay, yeah. Oh, this, I didn't even see this one. Yeah, this was from the chat. I was like, where did this yeah. one come from? Is it more challenging to do street epistemology on a scientific topic, vaccines, GMOs? I would even add Splenda because I get into these heated Splenda debates often with my uh, friends and my mom versus a supernatural one. So mm. kind of challenging. If challenging means harder, I would say no. Um, if I would, if, if challenging meant like it's diff more difficult for me to stick with it because I'm losing interest, maybe like I, I much prefer talking with people about supernatural stuff, a lady that thinks that she can tell when people will die. Another person that thinks karma is real. 
another person that thinks that there's a friendly ghost that would check on her family to make sure that her sister didn't pass away in the night who was sick or something. Like th those are much more entertaining for me than discussions about global warming. Is the moon right. landing a hoax? Vaccines, GMOs. Um, the main thing that you need to keep in mind when you are having conversations with people about scientific topics is to, you want to try to classify them. Are these people believing in it because they want it to be true? Are they just thinking that it's true? Are they trusting that it's true? Are they using some sort of variation of faith? Or are they actually using evidence? Oftentimes, they will say that they have evidence. And if that's the case, then the whole discussion needs to center around testability. Right. Or falsifiability if, if you're scientifically minded. That, that work can scare a lot of people. So you might want to stick with testability. But yeah, as a science, as, a, as an evidence-based person that thinks that vaccines cause autism, what evidence would you accept to lower your confidence that that's the case? And if they say nothing, then you know that there's some deeper reason why they're holding right. it and it's not evidence-based. It's yeah. I mean, I, my, my dad, I mean, he's a smart guy. I love him, but he is a climate denier. I mean, and you know, we bump heads a lot, you know, over this. And uh, I mean, especially one of the, I guess the tools that I, I picked up from, from watching you is, is that it's a very potent question is, you know, what evidence would it take for you to be convinced that, you know, the, the globe is actually warming and, you know, that this is actually a serious problem that mm -hmm. humanity has to contend with? And, you know, you and, might have people that come back and say, yeah, there is evidence that would change my mind. And then you can move out of street epistemology mode and start, you know, migrating more towards, okay, let's start discussing how many occurrences of this counterfact, this, this fact that actually challenges your position would you accept? There are people that, that they really did form the belief because of evidence and they think that there's evidence out there. But I would say get buy-in from them first before you even spend any time. You say, what would change your mind? And if they say this, then get a confirmation from them to say, okay, if it could be shown to my satisfaction that I was mistaken on it, then I will lower my confidence in this belief that I hold and then hold them to it. And uh, I think most of, the, most of the time they've never thought about what it would, you know, what, how they could falsify their own beliefs. I mean, they, they don't think yeah. most people that you come in contact, you know, and, and, you know, and, uh, and engage in such a discussion, they haven't really thought about, well, you know, this would change my mind. So you really get them at least, you know, from just, my own experience with my dad, you know, he kind of had to just stop, you know, and just really, you saw him really thinking because this is something he's never really thought about before. I mean, he's been saying, oh, it's all a myth and all it's all a myth, but he never really took the time, I feel like, to really unpack, you know, what it would really take for him to conclude that this isn't a myth, you know? Good for you for so, having that talk. And CJ mentioned off to the side here, first find out and make sure that they're actually using evidence or if they just, are they just saying it? Yeah, of course there's evidence that, that vaccines cause autism. Of course, I, I, it's all out there. Maybe you I just have, ask them, can you, can you point me to three sources? And it might become evident that they just don't have it. But you need to do it in a way that you're not embarrassing them because then they're going to be defensive and maybe try to start arguing with you so that they can dismiss you. 
one of those problems, I feel like there's not a lot of media literacy, at least, you know, like my mom, for example, she'll post a link from some blogger from California that's saying, you know what, the medical companies, pharmaceutical companies are trying to hide the promise of baking soda, you know, in its ability to cure cancer. And I'm just like, mom, like, for, for, for people, you know, especially, obviously, there's confirmation bias, you know, inherent in this, you know, you want to believe these things, because she obviously has a distrust of the pharmaceutical industry, but people, you know, they kind of absorb these, this, this information, and they ascribe validity to it, because either maybe because it's on a website, the website looks really fancy, it looks really legit, and they take it, okay, this must be, you know, there must be some truth to this. So... I feel like getting them to really consider, uh, you know, the actual evidence rather than just telling me, well, this guy from, you know, this blogger, this website says it, you know, I, I think, you know, is, is definitely an important conversation to have as well as to, you know, if they present you with a claim or they send you a link is to be able to explain why this from a methodological point of view is, is faulty. And avoid the temptation of getting into a back and forth about, well, there's your link, but I'm going to send you this link to this video. And then right. they respond with it. And then you're in this back and forth and you're not really making any progress. So you want to have a talk. You want to have a meta talk. You want to have a talk about the talk. You want to have a, a discussion about what would change their mind. Not specifically, right. but okay, if, if you were to see that. Um, would you abandon this belief outright? Would it lower your confidence? Would you not budge? If they say, if I saw it, it still wouldn't change my mind. Well, then you know you, there's no need spending your time on that issue. You need to go further. You need to go deeper. Okay. You want to read this one? Sure. Uh, I remember you saying before the atheists, etc., ought to take the opportunity when a chance to talk to someone about their beliefs come up. I'll try to rephrase this. Remember you saying before that atheists have, should have the opportunity to engage people about their beliefs. Trying to get a conversation going when someone says, pray for me. Usually when a friend tells me that, I feel weird steering the conversation in the direction of their beliefs and my lack thereof. As in, I get afraid that I'll seem like I'm belittling the thing they wanted, they wanted to be prayed for by changing the topic. It's not that I don't want to take opportunities to talk with people about their beliefs, though. And chances can be hard to come by. How do you go about this? Is there hope in trying to have a productive conversation about someone's belief after having sort of messed up the topic with them in the past? <laughs> Say if I wanted to have a conversation about someone else's religious belief and ask them Socratic questions about it, whereas in the past I argued with them over it. They'd already have some presumptions and defenses from the get-go, right? Do you still think there's still any hope here? Any tips? So there's really two questions here. Um, and they kind of go back to what we talked about earlier with family members or when it's a sensitive topic like the nine-year-old bride of Muhammad. Like, um, I mean, you shouldn't feel weird about having a talk with somebody. Uh, the other thing, I'll, let me just point out here. Somebody might say, I want to pray for you, and you just don't feel like it's the right venue to get into a whole discussion right. with them. Like a funeral. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you can just wait. You can say, 
why don't we just take this up online or maybe we can talk next week. You can wait until the, 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 the time is appropriate. You don't have to feel obligated to do it. Um, I don't think you should feel weird about steering the conversation into why they think that it's true. Um, if somebody opens the door and they make a statement, they're probably willing to discuss it at some level with you. Now you could probably, if they say, Hey, I have no interest in telling you why I think that this is true. It's true. And there's nothing that's going to change my mind. And I'm insulted that you even mentioned it. Well, then just end the talk. And maybe you can talk about safer topics like I mentioned before. So, um, okay, he's breaking it down here. Thank you. CJ. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to pick your battles. I mean, uh, the funeral parlor probably wouldn't be, you know, the best venue for that. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I've had but, conversations uh, with people where I've screwed up in the past. I'm, I was surprised that we were even, even, able, even, even able to have a discussion because I was going counter-apologetics and telling them he was stupid and impl well, implying that he was stupid. And we were still able to have a talk. What we ended up talking about was not his belief. This is a young earth creationist, but uh, a, diff a different denomination of Christianity. How can these Christians right. still hold this belief? So in essence, we were talking about his belief, but we were talking about a different party and it made it safer. So um, yeah, you, you can typically still recover from, from past you know, horrible discussions that you had in the past. I, it's, it's possible, it's a little bit more difficult and you might even want to address it and say, you know, I'm really sorry that we got off on the wrong foot, but right. I want to try a different approach of questioning why you believe this. These questions might seem a little weird and I'm just, I'm just new at this and it's, there's a little philosophical angle to it. But if you could just bear with me, um, do you mind if we try this different approach? And I think you might enjoy it. You can try it. That I, think way. Also, I think also you, showing you know, front with them. I think even also showing like a semblance of humility, you know, being like, you know what, I'm, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to, come across as I was belittling you, you're, you're a smart guy, you know, you made some very good points and I want to return to them because I feel like I may not have articulated myself, you know, properly. Uh, and affirmation, you know, allowing someone to affirm their, just psychologically speaking, just is just what the literature says, you know, allowing someone an opportunity to affirm their self-worth or their, their esteem makes them more open to the subsequent, you know, discussion and discourse, you know, knowing that, okay, he doesn't think I'm a total idiot, you know, we're kind of, you know, more or less in the same plane here, you know, it, it, that's kind of very important to, uh, you know, I guess, uh, emphasize is that humility, and which you do, you know, because you also say, well, I could be wrong, you know, and I think you also do when someone makes a good point, you actually say, you know, that was a very good point that you made. Mm. And that kind of, you know, was reassure somebody that, okay, I'm not just talking to a wall here. There's some guy that's actually listening yeah. and, you know, I'm not just a total idiot. I think it's helpful think it's if helpful you could demonstrate to your conversation partner. You getting an echo? You getting an echo? I'm not. I'll just keep talking then. Okay, yeah, they're getting an echo. What the hell is causing that? All right, let me turn my volume down a little bit. Uh... I think it's helpful to it's helpful to demonstrate to demonstrate your conversation to partner that you did hold a belief that you, did hold belief that you ended up abandoning abandoning and and that plays into the humility that, that, that I think you were talking about. I think you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to drop off and yeah, come back. I'm going to drop off and come back. On.
I think we kind of addressed that question. Uh, I, think, uh, I think we covered all the bases with that one. What can you say to, oh, there he is. Oh, it's not me. Is it me? Should I? I mean, I, I don't hear any echo, so. You sound good to me. Good on my end. I'm like spamming all my notifiers every time I come on. All my uh, followers. Okay. This last, was this the last, how many more questions do we have here? Th this one here is kind of similar to what we addressed before. What can you say to a child to get them thinking outside the imaginary box their parents created for them? Um, the, the question bothers me a little bit because the, the, the imaginary box thing. Uh, I mean, these, these are parents that love their kids. They think that they're teaching them something that's true. They're doing it in the kid's best interest. Uh, I don't think that they're intentionally setting out to harm their kids. I mean, that's what they're doing by teaching them things that are not true. So just remind yourself that even if you, if you were a believer, it might be easier. If you were a believer at some point, it might be easier to remind yourself that people are coming from a good place when they, they're teaching their children about these gods. Uh, I think they mean well. Um, it's hard to fault them for it because they think that it's true. And I understand. Like, I, I, was, I was raised in a, in, a, in a family where they taught me this stuff, and I went through my angry atheist phase, and I was mad at them and mad at the other people in my life that made me think that this thing was true. I'm going off on a tangent here. You know, I, I think it's important to separate the belief or the indoctrination from the person. I mean, I don't mm. want to say look at it from the perspective that they're a victim here, but you have to you know you you have to put yourself in their shoes and realize well this person you know he was raised by i don't know fundamentalist parents you know he was homeschooled or you know just consider his circumstances and you know this person i mean he 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 doesn't he doesn't know any better you know he's kind of you know it's not, it's not like this is intrinsically who he is i mean and the fact that i changed and that you know other people that also change i mean this is it just goes to show you that it's not the people here. You know, this is really just the belief. And I know a lot of this is very, I guess, uh, redolent to a lot of, you know, ex-Muslims here is just kind of separating Islam from Muslims. You know, the idea versus, you know, the people who are really yeah. just victims of circumstance, you know, in their own upbringing. I think that goes for every belief. Try, and I said this earlier, try to create an environment where you're looking together at the belief that the person holds, not at them, not at their, this isn't a reflection of their, their ego or their personality or them, them, them as a person, their brain. Yeah. You're holding a belief in your brain. Let's unpack it. Let's work together to figure out if it's really true. How do you know it's true? Uh, try to distance themselves from the belief and, and be humble. Try to, you know, be, be open to demonstrating that you're perfectly willing to do that same level of investigation on a belief that you might hold. Right. And I think another good approach is sometimes you have the interlocutor, I guess, or you ask them, you know, is there ever a time where you thought you were sure of something and then ended up changing your mind, you know, and, that could kind of reinforce the sense that, you know, it's okay to 
change your mind sometimes and to, you know, even I myself, I reevaluate things, you know, where we have a finite primate brain that we're operating on and, uh, you know, things aren't very clear all the time and, you know, as much as we want them to be. So it's okay to kind of, uh, you know, ask these questions. And I think we addressed this issue, this question specifically with kids. What, What can you do? So just refer back to our earlier discussion. About five questions left, I believe, somebody said. What are top important arguments against faith? I'm thinking what are the what are the best ways to argue against faith? I'm gonna go I'm gonna go with that. Well have them define I mean I would say have them define it first, but I'll let you uh, you know take that uh, So this um, question might mean where might be that faith means religion or a belief system. Not necessarily a method. I, I'm going to assume that this person meant faith as a method for coming to know something to be true. The best way to to help a person examine faith as a methodology is to, like you said, Zach, get a definition of it, get their definition of it. They might refer to their holy book and present that to you or spend five minutes explaining what it is. But it's important that you understand what they mean by faith and then talk about the reliability of it as a way to come to know something to be true. Just ask questions. How are you so certain that faith is reliable? If everyone used your method, would they arrive at the exact same belief? What do you say to people that have used your method and believe in completely different things. Is that method really reliable if everyone's coming to all these different conclusions? I had a really good talk with a guy named Antony, A-N-T-O-N-I, where we get into exactly this. We even talk a little bit about the relativism and truth. He doesn't go quite that far. And we pivot to faith and the reliability of faith. That's a really good discussion if you want to familiarize yourself with it. So street epistemology would be my go-to when anybody says that they're using faith as a way to come to know something to be true. Do you find, Anthony, I mean, like the people who, you know, who you ask them to provide a definition of faith, did you find that most of them have, you know, working definitions they quickly just, you know, drawn or do they, are they kind of stumped and are kind of, you know what, maybe I haven't really actually, you know, formally defined it for myself. You know, I, I, it's across yeah, the board. Faith it's is so it's such a tossed around word that you know it's kind of just you know taken as is rather than actually unpacked. And I think that's the purpose of having them define it. Would you Would you agree? It's important to have them define it because you want to work off of their definition. Sometimes they've thought it through and they can rattle off eleven one if they're a Christian or if they're a Muslim. I've had Muslims say that they use faith. I've had Hindus say that they use faith. So yeah, get their definition, start talking about the reliability of it. Um, I've had people that they work for organizations where they tried to get college students to join Christian groups. And his definition of faith was not very well thought out. He had to pull out his phone and look up the definition of faith. So it's across the board, but you'll be surprised. The people that you would expect to know what it is may not even have ever thought about it. And just the average Joe in the street that is, has no affiliation with a, with a religion or anything like that. They're not all that invested into it can just rattle it off like that. So it's, it's across the board. 
if somebody could, you know, could somebody paste that link to that video with Anthony? I think that would be useful. A-N-T-O-N-I. All right, next question, please. Oh, if their definition of faith is off, do you correct them? That's a really good question. Uh, no. No. Um, I'm not ever telling anybody what the right definitions of words are. With the exception, perhaps, of maybe truth. Um, but even then, it, it's still a discussion. I'm still asking questions. What is your definition of faith? Why do you think it's reliable? Can you, do you use it in daily life or do you only use it to be certain that this, this God exists? So no, I, I generally, I will go with whatever dish, definition they want and I want to make, I'll write it down. I'll even write it down and say, you know, explain this definition to me as if I was a 10 year old and let's write it down here and then you can keep coming back to it. And sometimes they revise their definition. It's not like I'm writing it down to trap them. If, if they have a definition of it and then five minutes later realize that it's a shitty definition and they want to revise it, cool. Because now we're, we're better understanding the method you're using to get to the belief. So be flexible on definitions when it comes to faith. Uh, be flexible and willing to go where they take you. This isn't about trapping people. It's about understanding them and understanding how they form beliefs. I also think, you know, one of your more compelling tracks that you take, you know, with the topic of, of faith is, you know, would you rather, rather than going off 100% faith, would you rather, you know, you know, maybe go 40% off of evidence? Would you rather, yeah. would you prefer more of your, that your belief is based off of evidence or would you rather have her be faith? There's so many questions you can go to with faith. Yeah, exactly. Uh, do you have no choice but to use faith? Would you prefer to have another method to know that this belief is true besides faith? If you can kick faith to the to the curb and have testable, repeatable evidence, would you? Which would you choose? And oftentimes they'll say, "Well, I would really like to have the evidence." Okay. Do you have any evidence for the belief? Not really. It's all faith. Okay. That those are huge, powerful discussions that you can have with believers. Yeah, and I mean, especially if they're at the 100% mark, I mean, I mean, just I guess for some background, Anthony usually at the beginning of his talks or interviews with these people, he kind of tries to place or map their confidence level of the belief on a 0 to 100 scale. And, you know, a lot of people, I mean, they'll say they're at the – would you say most people say they're at the 100? I mean, at least initially? Yeah, for the most part, they usually rank themselves pretty high. Right. And then it gets to a point where it's like, so you got to that hundred mark all on faith, you know, that hundred percent, if you were to pie chart that, that's, that's all faith here. And, you know, if you have the option of, I guess, pruning down the percent of the pie chart, that's faith. And, you know, maybe having a little sliver of that, that's evidence, you know, would they be interested in that or would they prefer that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one thing we didn't really mention is that I, I do like to get an idea of where a person is in the certainty that their belief is true. Scale from 1 to 10, 0 to 100, A to Z. It doesn't really matter how you do it. And you don't have to do it, but it is kind of nice to know where they stand on the certainty that their belief is true. 
because if you have a discussion about faith and they've defined it and you've both discovered together that faith as a method for coming to know that your belief is true is not reliable, you can pivot back to that scale and ask them if they're, st if they're still willing to maintain at that level based on the discussion that you just had. If they're being honest with themselves, they will almost always lower their confidence in the belief. But I, and, I feel that like is, that is a neat thing to see when it happens. I feel like even without even explicitly conceding that, I mean, obviously, because the dynamic that I perceive is, you know, everybody wants to save face. Nobody wants to admit, you know what, you scored some points off of me here. And I'm, I'm mm. kind of, you know, yeah, uh, but yeah, see, you're right. It all goes back to how you frame it. Like if you're framing this as a competition where I'm, you're going to make a move and I'm going to counter and this is, I'm going to box you in a corner. If, if you start off that way, then yeah, the person might be less willing to admit that they've lowered their confidence. But as you're, if you're approaching this as a, as a, a partnership, how can we figure out what you believe and are there better ways to determine if it's true? If you get them on board with that from the start, then they're probably going to be open and honest with you throughout the whole talk, including the reevaluation stage where they might decide to lower themselves or raise themselves or say, no, even though we've had this talk, I'm still pretty confident of where that I'm at, of where I'm at when utilizing street epistemology with people of the Islamic faith, are there any marked differences in the responses you get? Uh, if so, what are they? Mm. Well, living in Texas, I don't run into a lot of Muslims, but I have run into a few. I've probably had maybe 20 face-to-face -face conversations and maybe another 20 online. Almost the main thing that I get from Muslims is it's, it's rarely faith from the start, although it oftentimes gets to that. It seems to always be about the Quran being consistent with reality. That's usually the main thing, the main reason why people believe it, because the Quran, it says it in the book. And just look, it says that alcohol is harmful and we can see the devastating effects of alcohol. It's clearly true. So that's usually the argument I get or that it, that it so parallels with science and all the things that we find out with science. Well, I can go right to the book and tell you that we knew that that, that was, that was stated in the book hundreds of years ago. So um, that can get frustrating, but to answer the question, that's typically the majority of the responses that I, that I receive from, from Muslims is that they defer to the book. It's always about the book, almost always about the book. Very yeah, rarely, just, very rarely is it about personal experience or prayers being answered. I'm sure that there are people that are Muslims that would point to that, but that's been my experience. And just to add to what you're saying, I mean, my survey data, you know, of the ex-Muslim community, I mean, when these people were at their, I guess, peak confidence level, you know, most of them say what the most important, I guess, pillar of their confidence was these scientific miracles in the Quran. I mean, because obviously for a lot of people, faith is at the core of it all, but they kind of need to mask, you know, this blind faith because nobody wants to recognize, okay, I'm just believing just blindly on faith just because I just want to. Nobody, that, that could be the reality, but nobody wants to be consciously aware that that's what's going on. So these Quranic miracles, these, 
you know, uh, historical, you know, this vindication of historical events or prophecies. This is all kind of really these, that, that protective belt of beliefs that I referred to before, which is why I think street epistemology especially is, is, is geared towards really getting beyond that, you know, unmasking or peeling away the, these, you know, all this other, you know, these thickets of, you know, just auxiliary beliefs. And uh, I do also feel that, I mean, when talking to Muslims, it's, especially if you take the uh, outsider, uh, you know, what's the term? The, the, the outsider, outsider belief. Test. Yeah, outsider, outsider test. test. Is they'll say, well, you know what? The Quran, all, we can reconcile, you know, this all with the Quran because the Quran mentions, you know, Jesus. You know, it says Jesus was a prophet. Yeah, I was, it's, it's good that you mentioned that. I was just going to say that uh, if you're going to use outsider tests for faith, which is this idea of comparing competing religions with a Muslim, don't choose Christianity because yes, they're going to go to, well, Jesus is mentioned in the Quran. So go with something a little bit more obscure, go with Scientology, go with, go with uh, Hinduism is a really good one. Uh, I had a very good talk with a young Muslim woman who, who um, we started talking about a Hindu that thought that there were multiple gods and she just said that it just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, and it, as it turned out, it didn't make sense to her because, well, she was raised right. as a Muslim. So, um, yeah, try to avoid outsider tests for faith with, uh, with Muslims and using Christianity. <clears throat> yeah. As CJ says, for Islam, Christianity isn't outside enough for the outsider test for faith. Yeah, go polytheistic. Go or even or even the um, the, the Ahmadi community. I think there's actually an Ahmadi or an ex-Ahmadi in our audience here. I mean, even using that because they they're kind of like the Mormons of Islam, whereas they believe yeah there was Muhammad, but then there was this other guy that came around and he was actually the final prophet. So and for 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 Muslims that that's that's a huge affront, you know, because Muhammad was God's messenger, and you know, well, it's like well, how you can't. You know, if they believe the Ahmadi community, they believe that this is God's prophet. How do we really tell who is right here? So I feel and, like, and, re and remember too, don't get tied up in the differences of the doctrine. And well, this is more true because this person was born, you know, in a hierarchy or something like that. Like, don't don't get tempted. Avoid getting into the weeds of the doctrine. Stay focused on. The epistemology stay focused on how they've arrived at the belief uh as an ex-muslim i will often get condescending statements from muslims oh you just don't know islam you need to sit with a scholar other times they will threaten me with punishment in the afterlife just wait till the judgment day you will regret then how is best to respond mm. so this kind of plays off of what we just talked about the first part of it you don't know Islam. You don't understand the doctrine. You need to, you need to sit down with someone that's, that's more educated. That might be true if I wanted to learn about your doctrine, but I want to understand why you think that it's true. Help me understand how you've come to know that this book, all the claims in the book are actually true. So I would just, I would just avoid that. I'm not here to learn about something that probably isn't true. If it could be demonstrated to me to be true, if it could be demonstrated to me that you've used a reliable way to come to know that this book is true, then absolutely I'll sit down with that scholar, but I'm not there yet. And the other part of this is 
Other times they will threaten me with punishment in the afterlife. Just wait till judgment day and you will regret it then. You got to ratchet back your emotions. If you respond emotionally, they're going to respond emotionally. And before you know it, you're going to be fighting. The conversation is going to end and nobody's going to learn anything. So I would give them a little leeway. More often than not, when believers threaten you with hell or just wait, you know, you're going to get yours. Usually it's because they care about you. They, um, they're worried for you because they really think it's true. So just remind yourself that they, they hold a different worldview. It is probably not based on anything that's justifiable. It might be, be open to it, but um, give them a little slack. Yeah, you even if you were, it's probably easier if you were a believer. If you were a believer and you believed all these things, it's probably a lot easier to relate to why they would be worried for you and trying to scare you into believing it. Well, nothing else is working. I love you, so let me scare you into the belief. And the other thing I want to say is, you not believing what they believe is a threat to them. Right. You're you're standing right there in front of them, saying, "I don't really believe it." So at some level, they have to know that that um, that there there are, there's a population of people that just don't buy into it, and that's a tough thing too. Right. I mean, I, I feel like when that's you know these divine sanctions are thrown in you know into the discourse, it, it's kind of coming from an area of insecurity, I guess, in some situations where they don't really know how to you know engage with you on the level of you know rational discussion so this will kind of be their you know last card that they have is to say well you know what you're going to hell and uh you should be very worried yeah catherine says uh scare tactics out of desperation that's possibly what it is like they're at their maybe at their wits end they care for you and they're just grasping at straws and and trying to save you they're worried they're worried about you and yeah that is a sign of desperation it's a sign of that they probably don't have a good justification for holding their belief. Try to look at it positively is, is I guess what I'm getting at and, and don't fall for it. Don't take the bait and start arguing with them. Sorry if my cat is camera bombing me here. He's prone to upstaging me. There we go. All right. Um, Are we on questions there, CJ? Do you think belief in God might have evolved in us humans? Just taking it deep. Do you think belief in God might have evolved in us humans? Hmm. Well, you have to, I mean, I think you have to specify what you mean by evolve. Well, or I was more focused on a God. Like, I think humans probably have evolved. Uh, with a tendency to try to find answers to things that we don't know. Right. And we, we do that all the time. Like there's clouds on the horizon. Maybe it's going to rain or what do I do tomorrow? If, if the rivers dried up, like what was that noise? Like we've been doing that for millions of years, hundreds of thousands of years, probably at the very least. So yeah, I, I guess if God would be a cause like if God means a cause, 
then I would say, yeah, I think it is, it is something that evolved in us. Interestingly, I think we may be reaching a point where it's, it seems like it's becoming a hindrance to us yeah. that, 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 that did serve us well in the past, but we're reaching a, a tipping point where belief in you know, trying to make up things, trying to make up answers where there are none is becoming a liability for us. I think the, you know, the current theoretical consensus, I mean, there's obviously, you know, it's still, you know, it means it remains to be, you know, thrashed out, you know, uh, to its limits. But right now I, I feel like the, a lot of scholars believe that belief in God is kind of a incidental byproduct to the cognitive tools or hardware, which helped us survive the, state of anarchy, which was our savanna environments, you know, and being able to be, you know, having a, a keen sense of pattern recognition and uh, being able to, you know, being very, very sensitive to environmental cues. And especially when you don't have an immediate answer to explain a, an environmental phenomenon, kind of in a sense god you know serves as a placeholder where it answers this question and allows you to expend your mental resources on gathering food and you know and going about you know with just your rest of your daily life i mean in a sense uh god i forget what the scholar said it provides the most wide reach uh, far-reaching, uh, you know, uh, significance with the minimal cognitive input, meaning that you could use God, it's very adaptable. You could use, you could invoke God to explain all sorts of different phenomena, and then you don't have to worry about being a mystery anymore. So you could, you know, that allows you to invest most of your mental, you know, machinery in just, you know, foraging for food or, I mean, this is kind of the theory that some scholars have been trying to uh, you know, I guess posit, uh, I don't think, you know, if you were to take a kid and just raise him in the forest, would he ultimately come to believe in God? Uh, you know, or at least a monotheistic God. I, you know, I'm very doubtful. I mean, uh, mm. obviously I, I think, I think that would be a really interesting experiment and I would, I would, Unethical, my, yeah. <laughs> yeah. my hypothesis would be that people would create gods. Because I think God is the ultimate coping me coping mechanism. Right. It, it just provides a sense of control. Because listen, if, for example, I'm a uh, an early human in my environment, and I come across a, you know, uh, a thunderstorm or it, it, that that wrecks my crops, having someone to turn to, an object, you know, that could potentially, if you propitiate him, can potentially control the situation. That yeah. restores control. Whereas Lack of control is just from an evolutionary perspective, that's very dangerous. You know, we want to know that we're able to control or exert some type of influence over our environment. Sure. And then humans, of course, will look for patterns and see verification that that belief served me properly. Uh, when I made that sacrifice and the rains were favorable this season, well, maybe there, yeah, there probably is that God up there and, and this was a good thing. So, yeah, that's agency, somebody is typing. It's a very deep question that, I, you know, it doesn't, uh, we can't, this conversation doesn't merit the, 
you know, the full really conference that such questions, you know, actually, you know, uh, yeah. take on. Yeah, this is a deep question. And I'm, I'm trying to think of if there are any books. Does anyone know of any good books about this? Maybe yeah. Michael, Michael Shermer, I think, is coming there, there's actually, mind. I could actually recommend, I mean, I, I've read, I try to read, you know, every one that comes out. So um, I could actually recommend several. If you there's want. a book called Alpha God. That might be a really good one. Let me just do a quick search. There's one called Belief Instinct by cognitive scientist Jesse Baring, which yeah. uh, I find, I found really, uh, you know, informative. And uh also, Justin Barrett, he was also, I guess, one of the pioneer or pathfinding cognitive science piss of religion. He actually, uh, you know, penned a few books himself. And incidentally, he's also a theist, but, you know, kind of, it's interesting how he re re reconciles his belief with, you know, because once you really humanize belief, you know, it, it really takes a lot of the air out of the supernatural aspects of it all but somehow he's able to do that so yeah the belief in stick by jesse baring i definitely must read it's, it's you know he's a really good writer and uh he knows what he's talking about <laughs> it's interesting the last question here is very similar to the previous ones it seems like there are a lot of people interested in how to to help children think more critically so this question says hello part of my escape plan Involves working here since I didn't get a scholarship as a teacher for four years as I will work with young Muslim children as an English teacher. So I, the question here is, how do I help young children develop a more critical thinking style? Well, this goes back to what we've talked about before. Engaging kids with stories. You can make up a claim and say, I saw a UFO land in the field next door. It was fascinating. You, you kids weren't around to see it, but it was quite interesting. And you can start uh, encouraging them to ask you questions. You can start encouraging, uh, rewarding them when they say that they don't know and make it a joint effort to look things up. Uh, I don't know if I, we've, we've kind of hammered on that a couple times now, so I don't want to get too much further into it than that. But did you have anything that you wanted to add, Zach, on that? And if there are any more questions from the audience, uh, we'll take one or two more before wrapping it up. Well, I mean, um I feel like in terms of everybody goes through an epistemological development, you know, where at the initial stage, you know, there's only one truth, you know, and that, you know, it's either right or wrong. And, you know, gradually through learning, through exposure, through encountering, you know, uh, competing or contrasting perspectives, you know, you're able to see, you know what, there's validity in other truths as well. And then once you reach that relativistic stage, then you come to the point of where you're actually yeah, you know, some truths are more valid than others and we should use rational or empirical argumentation in order to, you know, bear that out. Uh, so I think the, you know, with kids who are at that point where, you know, things are very, things are very, uh, you know, I guess concrete, you know, they look at things very concretely where this is or isn't. And I think it's kind of to get them to consider other perspectives, you know, that could potentially, you know, shed light on a situation. Uh, and thinking them from other vantage points is, is, is key. I, I don't you're not going to be able to, they're not going to be Einstein's, you know, uh, you know, through your, you know, you have to take a very, I think, minimalist perspective, uh, you know, uh, 
I guess you should strive for something more minimal at this point rather than just, you know, them being, you know, uh, their own child prodigy scientists, you know, that they, they, they should, you should definitely get them to look at things in a critical manner, like you said, and also to consider other perspectives on the topic, you know, especially if you're going around a room, someone has one opinion. It's good to hear for a kid to hear, you know, that his perspective isn't, you know, doesn't reign supreme, you know, that there's other, you know, someone may have another point and to consider alternative points. And that's also, you know, gets people in the frame of mind, you know, in, in other contexts where, you know, they start to think themselves and start to develop these competing perspectives and scenarios on their own. Because when we engage our rational faculties of our brain, we're really, it's really just generating alternative hypotheses, you know, other alternative states of the world. So with a kid is you want to get them into that early on by having them imagine, open up their imagination, have them think about other ways the situation could have ended up or could have, uh, how, how it could have manifested differently. The one part about this question I want to just touch on, uh, that part of my escape plan, uh, it makes me think that maybe you can be penalized or, or you, your, your well-being might be in jeopardy by engaging with kids in this manner. So just be careful and choose safe topics. You don't have to go for the deep philosophical, great meanings of life type of questions like the God talk. You can go for the simple things. Right. It's just like you said at the beginning, you know, just instilling these habits, you know, it's kind of, you know, working that muscle, you know, that critical muscle, you know, and getting people rather than just, you know, glomming on to one conclusion or, you know, or one state of the world, having them consider competing others. And uh, that's important because that forms the basis of, you know, more higher order uh, critical thought. So. There was one more question from the audience here. Uh, maybe CJ, you can copy and paste it over. It says, is it worth the effort to sell slash promote street epistemology methodology to theists, to believers? Uh, I, I really don't have an issue with believers watching the videos, reading Bogosian's book, downloading the app, getting familiar with asking Socratic questions. Um, I, I'm a little surprised that they would be drawn to it. And my, I think my initial instinct was, oh my gosh, this is the worst thing ever. But the more that I think about it, number one, w there's nothing that we could do to stop it. Uh, but number two, and even more importantly, I don't, I don't see a downside to it. Because if, if they're walking away with a tool f that, that helps them more critically examine the claims that they encounter, then they're more than likely going to turn it on themselves. I've heard people, I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard people are going out with a whiteboard and a timer and they're going out to talk about Jesus using street epistemology. I've heard of it being done, but I haven't seen it yet, but I'm dying to, I, I think it would be extremely interesting. And I, I think it would help make the argument of the, the whole idea of neutrality, that we're trying to approach this from a neutral point of view. It will be great to have an extreme example where you can see somebody going out asking Socratic questions and then saying, uh, you know, having somebody say, well, I don't really know if there's a God. And then watching the 
interviewer, the person leading the discussion, say at that point, well, let me provide you with the answer. Boom, at that point, it's no longer street epistemology and you can see that they were trying to lead the person to some sort of conclusion. So on the one hand, I'm a little perplexed why a theist would want to try to use SE because if they give any thought to it, if they use the tools on themselves, I don't really see how they can maintain the belief that they hold. So when it comes down to it, that's just a really long way of me saying, I'm a little surprised to hear that they would want to use it, but I would be excited to see them use it because I think only good things could come from it. And I think it's also important, you know, we're obviously not outside the target field of street epistemology. It's good practice, even on ourselves. And I think even someone on your Facebook group, you know, posted a thread saying, you know, what's one belief, you know, that you've never considered, you know, how it could be wrong, you know, and even it's just good practice. It's good habit, uh, you know, on our own, uh, even for a street epistemologist to, you know, question himself, obviously. So I, uh, I think even if a theist, you know, I guess acquired or, or learned these tools, you know, there could be, you know, a, he might kind of incidentally start to, like you said, you know, apply it, you know, or, or, or stumble or create his own doubts yeah. just because, you know, these questions really get your, you know, mental juices flowing. Yeah. How wonderful would it be for that interviewer who's going out with a Christian agenda encounters somebody that is familiar with SE that can have a dialogue back with them? Because ultimately this is all about discovering what the truth is. So it should go both ways. These are tools that should be in the hands of everybody, politicians, reporters, family members, clergy. Uh, that's why I love having, you know, blabs like this where we can be introducing this idea to a completely different demographic that may have never been exposed to it. So I'm, I would love to see Muslims using street epistemology, get familiar with it. There's, there, there's a tremendous amount of resources available to you today that weren't available three years ago. You got Bogosian's book, you got YouTube channels. There are people in this very blab that almost nightly engage with believers and, um, I'm going to just kick you there, CJ, because I think we're done with the questions. And uh, you can find example after example and just dip your toe in it, get used to it, experiment with it. And if you're interested in having reflective, fun, meaningful talks with believers that think that Allah exists, then I think this is the right approach. I also think it's, it's, it's important to... I mean, obviously, it would be great if everybody, you know, you spoke to just as like, you know, fell, plummeted all the way down to zero and, you know, became, you know, an, an, you know a non-theist and, you know, went on just, you know, mindfulness meditation and discovered some new way of life. But I think it's also a success could even be someone just dropping down, you know, even a few percent or even from 100 to 99 or to even, you know, if because of the conversation with you rather than him believing in fire and brimstone Christianity, he starts developing, I guess, a more liberal, you know, outlook, you know, to, so that he's able to finally rationalize the inconsistencies that that also can be some way considered a success. Uh, yeah. I think just, just even walking away from a talk with a little bit of doubt and a little more humility 
and less arrogance. Like, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe this really isn't true, but I get a lot of comfort out of it. I get their social benefits from just helping somebody become a little bit more sincere can make a talk worthwhile. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, you, you don't have to gun for complete deconversions. Yeah. That's not realistic. And, uh, I think, you know, Peter Bergosian, I think he's a, tried to adapt uh, street epistemology for the context of de-radicalization. And I think his emphasis, you know, there is, you know, it should be about sowing doubt because if someone's at the 100%, that means, you know, that, that implies that they're, uh, you know, willing to act on their beliefs. If they're that certain that their beliefs are reality, you that, know, it's just. That's, that, that's exactly it. The beliefs that we hold motivate us to do things. So if we're holding a belief that's not in line with reality, then we as humans have an obligation to help people learn that, discover it. Because we don't want people running into a club and shooting it up because they think that their book is commanding them to do. Even if you're a Muslim and you, you're completely against that type of behavior, wouldn't you want that individual to have encountered somebody to ask them these types of questions? Yeah, it's really piercing that tunnel vision. You know, if you're about to engage, and even from a counterterrorism perspective, you know, this is actually talked about, is someone that's kind of tunnel vision, okay, I have the bomb strapped onto me. I'm going to walk into the pizza parlor. It's really kind of just that seed of doubt that can make him, make him question, you know what, maybe, what if I don't go to paradise? What if there is no paradise? I mean, I was even talking to a Moroccan kid a few months ago on the Reddit X Muslim forum, and he told me that he really wanted to join ISIS. You know, he was well on the way, you know, towards that direction. And he said the only reason why he stopped was because he started having doubts about, you know, you know what, maybe there really isn't a paradise. Maybe it just all goes to black and there's nothing and I just kill myself over a lie. And that's what really, really, I guess, kind of chastened him and, and really, uh, you know, kind of uh, had a moderating effect on, you know, the decision he made, you know, in that period of time. So uh, those doubts, those kernels of doubt can even, they can go a long way, you know. It may not be immediately appreciable, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, you have to pop their bubbles, I guess, you know, their cognitive bubbles where everything is just true and everything is certain. I mean, there's a lot of these people coming from environments where, there's a lot of group thought where everybody's kind of reinforcing these beliefs, you know, this is true. And it's important to penetrate that and just to kind of subvert it as much as you can. Yeah. I, th I think doubt is a gift and street epistemology could be the most effective delivery system of that gift. And it's a real honor to, to be able to address a group of, I, I know this is, this is really geared for, for ex-Muslims, but I know that there are other people watching and just being able to talk a little bit about street epistemology and the benefits and some of the questions and answer some of the questions that you had. Uh, it was a real honor to, to be able to do this. And thank you so much, Zach, for setting this up. Uh, no, this you, is, you did a lot of work behind the scenes and I greatly appreciate it. No, this has been great. You know, Anthony, I think what you're doing is just awesome. And, uh, you know, I really think you're making, you're having an impact. I mean, I know you've had an impact on me and, you know, other people that have also seen your videos and uh, you are definitely, you know, a true source of inspiration, you know, for other people to, you know, engage more productive, you know, uh, just having more fruitful conversations with people in general.
Uh, I mean, I don't think, I don't look at this, okay, our, you know, public enemy number one is religion. I, I really think it's bad reasoning or faulty reasoning in general. And street epistemology is, you know, it's versatile in that, you know, we really get at the core. We just focus, we put the reasoning under the microscope. Whatever the contents of that reasoning is, got Jesus, Allah, Muhammad, or GMOs, doesn't matter. It's really just getting and, and just really just what is the basis, you know, and just focusing on that trunk of someone's, you know, you know I guess what powers their beliefs, and I think that's important. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that you took the time out to uh, come talk to this community, and uh, I, um, I hope you get some new listeners or viewers uh, as a result. Uh, that's, that would be great. I, I'd be happy if even just one person watched it and decided to try it and stuck with it, and they could see the benefits of it. So um, I'll be uploading this to my YouTube channel. Zach, thank you so much for, again, for doing everything behind the scenes. This will be on my YouTube channel. I'll probably take this screen cap and throw it on, on my YouTube channel, which is MagnaBosco210. Uh, Zach, do you want people to be able to reach you somehow? Or can they find you on the, on the Reddit? You want to give the Reddit handle that you're? Yeah, I'm uh, Badash87 on uh, Reddit. I'm usually, uh, I mean, I don't use Reddit too often. I kind of just use it to correspond with the ex-Muslim community. So you can either find me on Reddit at Badash87 or my Twitter handle. It's actually posted right on top of my head here, ZachG932. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it would be great to get some feedback. You know, if you have follow-up questions, uh, you know, I'm glad to take a shot at them. Otherwise, you know, I'll, I'll send them Anthony's way and, you know, we could provide, you know, a more expert answer. Or maybe we can do another one. We'll let them let them uh, let this marinate let, a little. Let, let them pile up a little bit. Maybe get another ten questions, and we can do something again, perhaps. Right, that'd be great. Street epistemology is a technique by Dr. Peter Bogosian in his book A Manual for Creating Atheists and his Android and iOS app Atheos. Mm -hmm.